Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Lowe Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. I'm Kyle Meredith, and I host an interview series called Kyle Meredith With, where I talk to legendary musicians, up-and-coming artists, and whatever that is in between. I dive deep into the making of new albums, stories behind songs, but also things like how is Moby connected with the CIA and did the Decemberists really thank Robert Mueller in their liner notes and seeing which band I can get to reunite? Will it be Zeppelin, Genesis, Roxy Music, or Pavement? You've got to listen to find out. It's Kyle Meredith with from WFPK Independent Louisville and the Consequence Podcast Network. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to The Opus. I'm your host, Paula Mejia. The Opus is a co-production between Consequence of Sound and Sony that re-examines an inimitable album's re-release and continuing legacy. This is our third installment, exploring Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks, a record that continues to shape how we tell stories through song. In our prior episode, I spoke with songwriters Beth Orton and Kevin Morby about the gripping nature of these heart-wrenching tunes. Today, I'm joined by two fabulous film critics, Monica Casillo and Jordan Hoffman. Here, we discuss Dylan's life on the silver screen. In a little hilltop village, they gambled for my clothes. I bargained for salvation and she gave me a lethal dose. I offered up my innocence, I got repaid with scorn. Come in, she said, I'll give you a shelter from the storm. For decades, Bob Dylan has been documented, deified, and detailed on film. From D.A. Pennebaker's Don't Look Back to Luca Guadagnino's forthcoming Blood on the Tracks adaptation. Their entire documentary is devoted to unpacking his various eras, from his Christian phase to that seismic moment when he went electric at the 1965 Newport Folk Festival. Then, there's features with Dylan in acting roles, such as the western Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, which sees him playing the elusive alias, and more out-there films such as the experimental Ronaldo and Clara. Even when he's acting outside of himself, there's a peculiar way that Dylan presents himself in film. In a 1978 review of Ronaldo and Clara, the New York Times aptly put it this way, As an actor, Mr. Dillon specializes in giving the simultaneous impressions that he isn't really interested in acting, and that he's always acting anyway. There's something about Dillon on screen that eludes interpretation, fictional and not. The title of Todd Haynes' Dillon biopic, I'm Not There, is culled from a Dillon basement tapes tune that was whispered about for decades. But it's also the perfect title to encapsulate someone who's always just out of the frame out of reach. Vulnerable, guarded, shy, prickly, and warm, Haynes' six-person portrait of Dylan at various stages of his life and career get at an idea of Dylan, but isn't really concerned with getting him at all. And that's what keeps us coming back. Strike another match, go start a new, and it's all I'm Monica Castillo, and I'm a critic and writer. 
Hi, I'm Jordan Hoffman, and I'm a critic and writer as well. To kick things off, I'm curious about your relationships with Dylan and Blood on the Track specifically. I have a really kind of distant relationship with Bob Dylan. Like, he wasn't part of the soundtrack of my childhood. Like, a lot of people have a really deep nostalgia for his music, and I didn't come to it until, like, my mid to late 20s. And I still feel like I'm just now getting a real sense and appreciation of his work. I was going through Blood on the Tracks and listening to some of the songs there, and I just realized, wow, I have so much more listening to do. I need to marinate with the lyrics, and I need to just sit in the sound. My experience is a little different from Monica's. I would say the exact opposite. I was very much marinated in Bob Dylan. My mom had freewheeling Bob Dylan, and I listened to that when I was very small. In fact, my mom was a big Joan Baez fan and saw Joan Baez in concert in Boston. And before the show, she's like, I'd like to introduce this new person to you and please welcome this new voice, Bob Dylan. And of course, famously, everybody was like, who? This guy can't sing. Get him off the stage and kind of booed and hissed. And according to my mother's lore, Joan Baez came back on the stage and yelled at the audience and said, you guys don't know what you're booing at. Why are you being such jerks? This guy is a genius and someday you will understand what you did. My mother didn't boo, by the way, she, although she didn't <laughs> like it. She's like, this guy can't sing, but she kept it to herself. She was at least polite. But it wasn't until I was in high school when I heard Blood on the Tracks. And I would uh, venture to guess that I'm a little bit older than the both of you. I am of a very specific age. It was from before CDs, but a little bit after records. I heard it on tape cassette, a Columbia tape cassette. And I was with a teacher that I had, like a writing and English teacher. And I used to like hang out at his apartment a lot and drink which is totally inappropriate. <laughs> wow. But, he was, but like my parents knew this and were totally cool with it. Like It was, it was another time. It was another time. Truly, yeah. I would go to his place and uh, drink and he would smoke weed, but I didn't. And my parents knew that too because they knew that I was like not into that at the time. So I would like go to his house and drink and learn life lessons. And the point is that I didn't know Blood on the Tracks. You never heard Blood on the Tracks, man. And I heard Side 2 first. Whoa. <laughs> so my first um, <laughs> my first entree into Blood of the Tracks was Meet Me in the Morning. Look at that sun Sinking like a ship Look at that sun Sinking like a ship And then after that it was all over. And then I became a Dylan fanatic. And in college, I was the guy buying at shops all the not very legal releases of the stuff that's coming out now. All the stuff that Sony's putting out mm. now is like, oh, man, if I had just waited, I wouldn't have had to buy those weird, sketchy, bad recordings that only had half the song or whatever. The Sony release of Live 1966, I had like a few different CDs that had parts of it. Well, it makes for a great story, though. Yeah. Hang on, my <laughs> I love how everyone has such a different entry point into Bob Dylan. I mean, because he's such a mythic figure and because his catalog is so vast, not only studio recording wise, but also very much the bootlegs. I would love to know where your entry point with Bob Dylan was, Monica. Oh, you might laugh, but it was actually inside Lewin Davis. Amazing. Yeah, it kind of brings us to our topic. I downloaded the soundtrack and really liked it. And I'm like, huh, I should check out like more folksy kind of songs. And then obviously, of course, they even kind of reference like a Dylan-esque figure in the movie and just started picking and choosing track here and a track there and kind of sampling throughout his career. 
course, it's a movie reason why I got into a musician. <laughs> no, but, no, but that's great. I mean, he's had such a presence in film, not only his songs being used in unbelievable amounts of film and TV. I was looking at his IMDb page and it was about 800 entries. Sure. Yeah. I mean, he's also directed and written some films. So Written is maybe overstating it, but he has, uh, <laughs> yeah. he has made, made his own movies. Yeah. yeah. What's your relationship been to Dylan on film? I mean, besides Inside Lou and Davis. This was actually fun to look back in some of his other roles, both in like Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and also obviously the Todd Haynes film, I'm Not There, because there are so many different interpretations of his persona, of who he was at that time, also some of the documentaries that he did, and of course, a lot of the concert footage. All of these things compile into just like one star persona. And that can mean very many different things, kind of like how, you know, David Bowie appears on screen and can represent different figures at different times in his career. So it's just really fascinating to kind of like look through all these different options. You're not limited to like, this is that one person. I really enjoyed revisiting I'm Not There for that very reason, because it was multiple different interpretations of his life and references to his work. But they could have kept going. Like there's still so much that they could have dug through, that they could have played with in terms of how we internalize that sort of star mythos and that persona and just the work itself and how we understand that person as the audience. For me, I mean, I, I remember seeing Don't Look Back, which is just if you're into like sort of mainstream classic rock, as we call it now, it's it's foundational. Like that and A Hard Day's Night are like the two best movies. I mean, obviously, Hard Day's Night is scripted, but Don't Look Back is myth-making at its finest. You know, he's always wearing the sunglasses, the interview with the Time Magazine interviewer where he's just giving him shit the whole time. If I want to find out anything, I'm not going to read Time Magazine. I'm not going to read Newsweek. I'm not going to read any of these magazines. I mean, because they just got too much to lose by printing the truth. You know that. What is really the truth? Really, the truth is just a plain picture of, uh, a, uh, you know, a tramp vomiting man into the sewer, you know, and 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 uh, and next door to the picture, uh, you know, Mr. Rockefeller, or you know, you know, any kind of picture. Just just make some sort of collage of pictures, which they don't do. They don't do. There's no ideas in Time Magazine. There's just these facts. You know, it's just perfect. Because now we think of Dylan as high culture, right? He won the friggin' Nobel Prize, right? But he was like a bad kid you know he was like a nasty smart ass and it was all a put on at first i mean that's why i think blood on the tracks is so interesting because his early albums he was pretending I mean, he was great but he was putting on a mask right i mean he was pretending to be woody guthrie he was not he was a 23 year old jewish kid from minnesota and then he got really really popular in the don't look back age and he was able to create this new persona he was also on a lot of speed he was wearing sunglasses all day he was kind of a mess then he has a motorcycle accident and he goes into the basement, right? The, the fabled basement where he and his, these other sort of like songwriter weirdos, Garth Hudson and Robbie Robertson and the rest of the band are doing this sort of weird Americana stuff. And then he puts that out like John Wesley Harding and self-portrait, which are also like kind of weird experimental things. And then he finally is living his life. He's married. He's got kids. He's got problems. And he makes blood on the tracks. And you could make an argument that that is really the first truly autobiographical album that he made. And maybe that's why it resonates so much is because prior to that, he had kind of been joking around a little bit, trying on masks and not really being true. Maybe, you know, nobody really knows. That's why I am there is so great because, you know, Kate Blanchett is Bob Dylan. A, yeah. a young black boy is Bob Dylan in that movie. So there's a lot going on. 
And in terms of other films, before that, there was the film Festival, which was a little earlier where he showed up. And this was very important to his myth-making. And then there was the movie Eat the Document, which never got released, which you can find out on bootleg VHSs. You look really hard. <laughs> but uh, even though Eat the Document never really got released, people knew about it. The fans knew about it. So it wasn't until whenever Pat Garrett came out, which I think was part of that pre-Blood on the Tracks part where he was still pretending to be an old cowboy or whatever. I mean, he's great in that movie. It's not a real part. I mean, he's just kind of goofing around wearing a funny hat, right? Yeah, and the camera just keeps looking at him, like expecting him to do something. <laughs> right. But then he always kind of underplays it or is it's just really it's a lot of reaction shots. Yeah, yeah. he has about five lines in the movie. It's and it's one of them like, is like reading labels. Yeah, beans. I remember that. <laughs> Plums. Yeah, that fun. I remember he's like in the general story, he's like, beans. Yeah. And when I when Tomato we were, paste. Yeah, when we were in college, that was the funniest thing. We would watch that and laugh. Let's hear it. Uh, beans, beans, spinach, eastern, plums, beans, beef stew, lard, quality, uh, quality, uh, salmon. Something that I was really struck by, and I don't know if this was meant to be a joke, but the first thing that Dylan says, like the first scene that he's really in is Pat Garrett asks him, who are you? And he just looks at me and goes, that's a good question. (laughs) And he takes a pull of whiskey. And that is so perfect to set up like us watching Bob Dylan on the screen, pretending to be a cowboy, but really just acting like Bob Dylan. Totally. Dylan, other than the documentaries, other than Don't Look Back, I don't think he's had a great movie that he's been in or been involved in directly. I mean, I'm not there is pretty cool, but... Pat Garrett is, and you know, his like Ronaldo and Clara never really got released in its original form. It's four hours long. Yeah. And Eat the Document never really came out. It was supposed to be an hour long special, and I think they killed it. Did anybody see Masked and Anonymous in the theater? I have not seen Masked and Anonymous. <laughs> have you seen Masked no. and Anonymous? I paid American currency <laughs> to see that in a motion picture theater, and it was empty. I didn't go like opening night, but I went early and I'm like, this is a Bob Dylan movie. Where is everybody? And about a yeah. half hour in the movie, I'm like, oh, they knew something I didn't. This is unwatchable. You know? But it has some of the greatest performances Dylan ever made on film. He does a version of Cold Iron's Bound in that movie that is absolutely spectacular. Wow. But then there's the other parts of the movie. It's just him and John Goodman wandering around and God knows why. (laughs) That's pretty wild. But I think getting back to something that we touched on a little bit with I'm Not There, we know everything about pop stars these days. And I think that we really crave understanding what makes these mythic people tick. But I think there's something about Bob Dylan that really resists interpretation at the same time, which is why I think I'm Not There is so interesting because you have this cast of characters like representing him in so many of his different forms. But I still feel like I don't really know anything about him after having seen it. Oh, absolutely not. And I don't think you're supposed to. I think it's more just considering all these different interpretations as part of the whole. The movie works because it's a funky, weird puzzle that your eye is just drawn to. Especially they they change like different formats. It's black and white in some parts of the film. Other it's like very vivid color. The different reflections of like who he was in different points of his life. Like obviously also the mannerisms like in the Kate Blanchett part, which is that 66 heyday of just like lots of amphetamines and things like that. She's like really pushy and just like almost outright mean. But she's also kind of sensitive and, you know, there's a reaction to all the things that are going on around her. It's a very fascinating kind of piece to watch because it is broken up into so many different places and you're kind of wondering, you know, how does this tie back into his life story? Yeah, it's a real bonanza for Dylan fans because there's Easter eggs 
wall to wall in that thing. I always wondered how someone who didn't really care for Dylan or if they didn't know them that well, what they would think of that movie, because I don't know that it works as a regular movie. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's I like it, but it's a little much if you're not into that guy. One section is like a making of. Yeah. And then there's a movie within the movie. And then there's the black and white stuff and then interview stuff. It's interesting because I know Luca Guadagnino is planning to do a movie version of Blood on the Tracks. Yes. Whatever that means. And I am uh, I'm a little skeptical. Ten different filmmakers can do their Blood on the Tracks movie. It doesn't matter because the album is the album and it's a different thing and nothing's going to touch it. I think Luca Guadagnino is sort of setting himself up for a fall. I mean, it's all a question of what the script is going to be. But like, don't you think the movie's going to be a little bit corny? Like, let me guess. There's going to be buckets of rain outside, and someone's going to need to take shelter from the storm. I mean, what is going to happen? <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> the most narrative thing on Blood on the Tracks is Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts. Yeah. And it's a great song, yeah. and it's a great story song. Yeah, dark. But in a movie, like, it's not that interesting. To visualize what's in the stanzas is there's a bunch of people in a uh, cabaret, and then somebody gets stabbed. It's like, I've seen that in 900,000 Westerns. Like, give me a break. It's not that great. It's great as a song, and it's great with the dissonant harmonica playing, and it's great with the use of phrasing of how every stanza ends with turns up the jack of hearts or, you know, the way it plays nicely. But as a movie, I think he's got a big challenge to make that intriguing. The next day was hanging day. The sky was overcast and black. Big Jim lay covered up, killed by a penknife in the back. What I imagine Luca Guadagnino is trying to do with this album, which is like create this very fictionalized account that dramatizes the really passionate and repressive moments. But I could be totally off. I'm imagining like, call me by your name, but blood on the tracks right now. I say unto thee, I'm not the world's biggest Luca Guadagnino fan anyway. Mm. I like call me by your name a lot. Yeah. Because that has a really good source material. It's rock solid source material. Mm -hmm. His other movies? Well, he loves adapting things. Yeah. Can't think of anything to say on his own. Oh, snap. (laughs) A diss, a cross-continental diss all the way to Italy. Shots fired. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of different ways to go. It could be that he wants to do a movie about a breakup and these songs are incorporated. Mm -hmm. But then why bother with the licensing? You know, who knows? I'm very curious to see what he does, but I'm also like, why? He can do anything else. Like, what a weird choice maybe it's a creative challenge i think that's how he's approaching it and maybe that's why he's excited about it he's clearly talking about it even though it's like very early in the development stages to the point where there's no real direction on where the story or the the movie's going to look like i'm curious how the songs are going to be incorporated into the film whether it's going to be in the background are we going to hear dylan sing or are the characters themselves going to sing the dylan songs like a musical is it going to be like an across the universe thing? It's all... I forgot about that movie. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's not <out> there. <laughs> that movie's bad. Classic rock on film has never... I, the, there aren't too many home runs. I think it's hard to catch lightning in a bottle on film like that, which is why I think I'm Not There is so successful because 
It's not a Dylan biopic. I mean, biopics are troubling. Inside Lewin Davis is a fantastic movie. I love it so much. And it really does get that scene, the folk revivalism scene in New York in the early 1960s. And it's not a Dylan biopic, although Dylan's in there. And it's not even a Dave Van Ronk biopic. And that's, they, I believe the Coen brothers did buy the rights to Dave Van Ronk's Mayor of McDougal Street. And there are some Dave Van Ronk direct connections, like the shot of the album called Inside Lewin Davis and the little mm. cat is there. There is a Dave Van Ronk album where he's in the same position with the little cat right there. Oh. And Dave Van Ronk was sort of like a avuncular figure to mm-hmm. Bob Dylan and taught him some of the ropes and showed him where to play and gave him some songs to sing. But it's not a biopic of Dave Van Ronk. It's its own thing. Sometimes things are so big that you're better off kind of getting from around the side. To your point, I think you have to take a not biopic approach to it Mm -hmm. where you have the vignettes where you're piecing together a story, but you're letting people kind of fill in the blanks on their own. Or you take a very particular slice of someone's life and you only examine that. Because if you try and do something that's so big, like Bob Dylan or Brian Wilson or whoever else, you are just going to get muddled in trying to like put everything in there. You get Bohemian Rhapsody. (laughs) It's a successful product. Product. (laughs) It's not a successful work of filmmaking or art or anything. But Bohemian Rhapsody has its place and movies like it. Right, because there's really literal ones like the Ray Charles uh, biopic, Ray, um, Walk the Line. Walk the Line and Ray, they're are better than Bohemian Rhapsody, but they're also too big. They're a little corny at times. They don't quite work. I think the best musical biopic of all time is Amadeus, Mm. and apparently it's all fake. Like, none of that crap happened. Really? (laughs) If you ask a Mozart (laughs) scholar, it's like, he and Salieri were buds. Yeah. You know, like, so... No, don't ruin that uh, for me. (laughs) I I, I mean, it's it's there's a lot of fiction in Amadeus, because life is messy, you know? Mm -hmm. It doesn't always lend itself to a film, so you got to be creative with it, I guess. Maybe Luca Guadagnino's interpretation will be good then, if it is messy and tries to tackle gets it. Gets creative. It gets really creative. I mean, I love how it was also like buried at the very end of that New Yorker story. I was like, oh, by the way, he's also adapting Blood on the Tracks. And I was like, wait, what? But apparently the movie will follow characters through a multi-year story set in the 70s that him and Richard Lagrubness, um, mm-hmm. he, he said, I'll only do it if he's the writer. I wonder what you think that pairing might be like. I mean, he's written some good stuff, but like 20 years ago. I mean, The Fisher King, I remember, was his like, mm-hmm. big breakout, which is a great movie for its time. I haven't watched it in a while. He also did Bridges of Madison County. Oh, that's and, actually a pretty good movie. And a movie that I remember very vividly from my childhood, A Little Princess. Oh. Yeah. So I don't know that he, he did that until I was looking at IMDb. Well, you know, Bridges <laughs> of Madison County, I love that movie. And the, the, the word is it's one of the very few examples of the movie being better than the book, right? Because mm. the book is kind of considered not that hot. So, yeah, I take it all back. He's the best. (laughs) (laughs) My one thing is that I hope, if anything, that at least the movie gets other people interested in going back and listening to the album. Whatever form the movie takes, it could be someone's Inside Lewin Davis where they introduce them to the folk scene or they introduce them into Dylan as a rock star and all these different things that then open up to them that, you know, just wasn't on their radar before. With blood on the tracks in particular and thinking about how that might be interpreted into a film 
And maybe this relates back to why albums never really quite get their due, like when they're interpreted on screen, is that maybe they can't really compete with the movies that are already in our heads. Like when something Mm. like that has already been canonized for years since 1975, like what is that going to look like? I mean, people have lived with this album, have broken up with people to this album. I mean... What could that be like for people who are seeing that? Well, particularly this one, because it's so famously emotionally raw. It's like the album you're supposed to listen to when somebody tears your heart out, right? Yeah. And Idiot Wind, right? is like the most angry, like, why did I stay with her? Uh." So you associate that song with someone. And if you see her say hello, is like you've already got a picture in your head of who that song's about. So when this movie gets made, it's like, nah, I've already got my version in my head. So that Guadagnino's got his work cut out for him because it's got to compete with that. I can't listen to certain songs on this album because they remind me of certain people still. And there's always going to be something that's really raw about that for anybody. Isn't there even a joke in the movie Singles, like when Campbell Scott is sad and his buddy calls him like, what are you doing sitting on the carpet listening to Blood on the Tracks? And then you cut to and he actually is. (laughs) Did I make that up? I think that's actually in the movie singles. Speaking of being sad and sitting on the carpet in I'm Not There, there is a scene in which Heath Ledger and Charlotte Gainsbourg are sitting on the carpet and Idiot Wind is playing, like after they have divorced. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's supposed to be the blood on the tracks-ish section of Bob Dylan's life when Heath Ledger is an actor who gets famous playing a folk singer in a biopic. So, yeah. (laughs) Not with the girls. Yes, Robbie. No. Robbie! You're not taking my kids! What are you going to do? What would you do? Because I would, you know. Perhaps I even would. If you actually could, who knows? But I'm not going to take your children away from you, Robbie, so you don't have to... To try and threaten me. <laughs> Someone's got it in for me. <sighs> They're planting stories in the press. <laughs> Whoever it is, I wish they cut it out. But when they will, I can only guess. There are other movies that Dylan shows up in in like cameo roles and they're all never that great. He's in a Dennis Hopper movie with Jodie Foster. It's like a crime movie and they're trying to find the bad guy and they go, oh, you got to talk to so-and-so. He'll know. And then you cut to Dylan. He's like, I don't know where that guy is. Blah, blah, blah. I haven't seen Ann Benton in a long time. Her forms aren't exactly simpatico. Who did you say you were working for? Oh, I work for Bank of America. I need a hundred pieces for lobbies up and down the state here. I really need to talk to Ann. The bank's Ann stuffing any good. It's too distracting, too literal. My friend Laddie Dill, he works in concrete. Yeah, I, I, I used to work in concrete too. Shoes. Fucking artist. He kind of takes these roles where he's a little bit in the background right. and has some kind of profession, like, I'm an iron welder. I'm going to read the labels in the saloon. (laughs) (laughs) There are other little asterisks all over the film world of where Dylan shows up. Mm -hmm. You know, some musicians show up in movies and like, oh, my God, they're perfect. You know, Chris Christopherson shows up as an actor. It's like, wow, this guy's terrific. Tom Waits, recently, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. 
Tom Waits gets his own chapter. It's like this guy. Like, he's always he's Tom Waits has done a lot of great movies, but Dylan has yet to do that. And it's I kind of feel like producers and directors have always wanted Dylan to be like, I bet you you put him in the right role and he's going to knock everybody dead. And unless I'm forgetting something, which is entirely possible. No, it's it's the appeal is mostly like who he is and people recognizing him. Yeah. For me, all, all the different versions that I've seen of like those cameo roles, they always seem very underplayed. He doesn't blow you away. Or did, he doesn't surprise you in the way like Bowie does. Like Bowie was a great actor as yeah. well as a great musician. I mean, he was he was really somebody who could do both. Certainly a lot of hip hop artists have... I mean, Common is a great actor. Yes, yes. And and most deaf. Oh, my God. We've forgotten about the most embarrassing, the biggest nadir in Dylan on film ever. The recent disaster, Life Itself. Oh, my gosh. That's how we sublimated this. Have you you heard about this movie, Life I have not. I would love to hear about it. It's an embarrassment. It's the guy who created the show, This Is Us. And he made a movie. With Lewin Davis is in it, with Oscar, yeah, Isaac, Os- Oscar Isaac, who I love. It. The cast is phenomenal. Olivia Wilde, Olivia, Mandy uh, Patinkin. Laia Costa. Antonio Banderas. And a recurring theme is the love of the album Time Out of Mind. And they wax philosophically about the importance of this album, and they use the music constantly. And it's a great example of how Dylan can transcend any... Punch. Like, Guadagnino's movie can suck and it's not going to hurt blood on the tracks because this movie is terrible. It's terrible. And Time Out of Mind is in it a lot. I mean, it opens pre-title sequence. You know, I'm walking through streets that are dead. Like, that's the first thing you hear. And it doesn't touch the album at all. Like, we forgot about it. We were making fun of this movie for weeks when it came out. Oh, yeah. We were, we were going through the plot points. But there's also a character named Dylan because of Bob Dylan. <laughs> so bad. Now, why is the movie bad? Because it's just a bunch of coincidences. It's called, it's coincidences the movie. And it tends to be coincidences against women in the movie. Yeah, every woman gets killed, like hit by a bus in the most tragic way. It's rough. Wow, I was not expecting that. Which leads me to think like whoever licenses Dylan's music is very uh, lenient. Because if they read the script, they would have been like, no friggin' way. But it's good to get the music out there, I guess. (laughs) In a variety of forms, it seems. Speaking of whoever licenses Bob Dylan's music being um, very generous with (laughs) use, I'm curious if either of you have really specific moments where Dylan's songs have had extra weight in a scene. Yes, 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 yes. 100% yes. In the movie New York Stories, which is an anthology film that Francis Ford Coppola, Woody Allen, and Martin Scorsese did in 1986, 87, 88, something around then. The first chapter is called Life Lessons, directed by Martin Scorsese. And it's Nick Nolte and Rosanna Arquette in Soho back when it was still artists in big lofts. And Nick Nolte's a painter. He's a brilliant, angry painter. Also a bit of a, of a womanizer and a sexist pig. But he paints to loud classic rock. And there are two sequences that show him when he's really in the zone, incredibly creative. And the paintings are beautiful. They're absolutely fantastic. Huge canvases, you know, abstract expressionist art. And one of them is a tune called Politician by Cream, which is not like a very well-known track, but it's a really great driving early heavy metal song, 1967 or so, 68 from the Wheels of Fire album. And then the other one, and he's really into it, just, and he's mad at Roseanne Arquette, who's his girlfriend, and they're having a fight. So he's like, hey, he slams the door in her face, goes in and goes to paint, right? And he's got his buckets out and he's flying paint everywhere. Nick Nolte with a big beard. He presses play on a boombox, which has got paint flecks all over it. And he's painting to the live version of Like a Rolling Stone from the album Before the Flood, which was 1974, which was Dylan on the road with the band. The first time he played with the band since 
it was right around the time they made Planet Waves, but it was the first time he was on the road with them, I think, since 66, 67. Yeah, and that was the kind of the warm-up to recording Blood on the Tracks as was, well. Was before yeah, the Fudge. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So it's got that thick kind of uh, Wurlitzer keyboard that Garth Hudson's playing. Levon Helm is singing right along with Dylan. They're screaming. It's so loud. It's such a loud performance. And it's loud and it's fast and it's angry as hell. And it's one of Scorsese's best films is like a 30-minute short in this anthology. It's perfect little movie. And I had the good fortune of watching that film just at around the time I was really getting into Dylan more than my mom's folk records. I was exploring the other stuff in that weird apartment with my creepy English teacher <laughs> playing the <laughs> tapes when he should have. We covered so much ground, I forgot about that. <laughs> it was around the same time. It was right around the same time. And that recording from Before the Flood is so good. That whole album is so good. A double album, too. I remember buying that on CD. It was so expensive. It was twenty four ninety nine for two CDs. He's taken everything he can steal. Next week, on the final episode of our Blood on the Track season, we're diving into bootlegging culture and how this album contributed to building Dylan's mythos. Our next season, coming in January, will chronicle the expansive influence of Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland. This show is a blast to make, but it's just a test run. If you like what we do and want to hear more, let us know. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Mark Mazuka shared a fun personal story about Blood on the Tracks in his Apple Podcast review. He said, I was 21 and my 60-year-old co-worker let me borrow Blood on the Tracks and said I may like this. It was so fresh, so contemporary, like it was written that morning. Simple Twist of Fate stunned me. The melody took me by surprise, literally took my breath away. I couldn't wait to show all my friends and was like, yeah, amazing, right? Every person in my life was like, Mark, what the hell is this? I'm wiser now and recognize most people won't get it, but I look back at my blind naiveness and smile. I was so shocked not everyone saw what I saw. I'm 35 now and own every Dylan album, but Blood on the Tracks is my first love. Thanks, Mark. I'm always really interested to hear what people's first Blood on the Tracks experiences were like. Apple Podcast Reviews are amazing, as that's the number one place people get podcasts from. But be sure to also check out Podchaser. It's a new platform shaping up to be the IMDb of podcasts and lets you rate and review specific episodes so you can give feedback as our focus on the album shift from episode to episode. We've also recently launched a Facebook page, facebook.com slash theopuscpn. Even in between seasons, we'll keep the discussion going there. We'll see you in a week for our season one finale. The Opus is written by Paula Mejia and recorded in New York City at ACAST by Taylor Zalton and Tim Ruggieri. It's edited and produced by Kat Blackard and Michael Rothman. Our theme music is by Coach Hop. Find out more at coachhop.bandcamp.com. Series artwork is by Stephen Fish. Special thanks to Monica Castillo and Jordan Hoffman for their time and insights. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to the In Defense of Ska podcast. There's a lot of like, okay, well, you like Ska name three bands that aren't the boss tones. I'm your host, Aaron Carnes, music journalist and author of the book In Defense of Ska. And I'm your co-host, Adam Davis, veteran Ska musician from the bands Omnigon and Link 8. On our show, we aim to push back on the mainstream's negative perception of Ska music. 
There are so many great untold stories throughout the history of ska. The show features interviews with everyone from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones to Fishbone, Fall Out Boy singer Patrick Stump, and the police drummer Stuart Copeland. Join us on In Defense of Ska from the Consequence Podcast Network, 